Due to the extreme nature of this program, listeners' discretion is advised. The subject matters may include topics of substance usage, sex, foul language, and references to historical events that may be sensitive to some listeners. Things discussed may not be considered politically correct in this overly sensitive environment. They may not be appropriate for listeners under the age of 13. As well as some listeners, no matter the age, may find things offensive. Again, listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to GXO, another episode of Generation Extraordinary, the podcast nobody asked for. Focusing on everything pop culture from the greatest generation ever, Generation X. So if it happened between 1960 and 1999, you darn right we're going to talk about it, like movies, music, TV, and even a bit of history from that year. Who knows, you may just learn something before we're done, and if you're lucky, this old man just may regale you with a story or two. I'm Robert Pop, coming to you from beautiful Podunk, Nebraska. She had no children, only dogs. And if you see her in your dreams, be sure you never, ever scream. Don't be scared. I'm the super sweet monster with the super sweet new cereal, Count Chocula. Biffle. Here's the super sweet new cereal, Frankenberry. But I've got chocolate sweeties for monstrous chocolate flavor. Well, I've got berry flavored sweeties for monstrous strawberry flavor. Count Chocula. Frankenberry. Hi. Ah. <laughs> Frankenberry. Count Chocula. All right, welcome back from that break. Since there are way too many movies in the horror genre, over the next several weeks, I, I'm going to try, and I mean hard, hard air quotes, and focus only on my five favorites from that decade. So this week, like I said, I'm going to focus on the combined comedy slash horror genre. And believe it or not, that's a thing. So from the 1960s, I'm going to talk about the fearless vampire killers. 70s, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. From the 80s, you get a twofer, Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice. And then finally in the 90s, The Frighteners. Many of you may not be aware of the Fearless Vampire Killers. It's from 1967, directed by and starring that fucking pedophile, puke-ass clown, Roman Polanski, and his future wife and Manson victim, Sharon Tate, as well as Jack McGowan. Set in the deep, deep heart of Transylvania, the story appears to take some to take place sometime during the mid-19th century. Professor Aberonius and his who's played by McGowan, and his apprentice Alfred, played by ass clown Polanski, are on the hunt for vampires. Aberonius is old and withering and barely able to survive the cold ride through the wintry forests while Alfred is bumbling and introverted. The two hunters, 
come to a small village seemingly at the end of a long search for vampires. The two stay at a local inn full of angst-ridden townspeople who perform strange rituals to fend off an unseen evil. While staying in the inn, Alfred develops a fondness for Sarah. Well, Sarah's being played by Sharon Tate, an overprotected daughter of the tavern keeper Yoin Shoggle. Yoin. You know, you just don't see enough people in this day and age. I don't think I've ever met anybody by the name of Yoin. Alfred witnesses Sarah being kidnapped by the local vampire, Lord Count von Krolock. Crazed with grief and armed only with a bunch of garlic, Chagall attempts to rescue her, but does not get very far before he is captured, drained of his blood, and vampirized. Is that really a word, vampirized? I don't know. We're going to go with it, though. After Chagall rises and attacks Magda, the tavern's beautiful maidservant and the object of his lust while he was still human, Abronius and Alfred follow his trail in the snow, which leads them to Krolok's ominous castle in the snow-blanketed hills nearby. They break into the castle, but are trapped by the Count's hunchbacked servant, Cuckold. Wow. But they're putting it out there, ain't they? They're cuckold. They are taken to see the Count, who affects an air of aristocratic dignity while questioning Aberonius why he has come to the castle. They also encounter the Count's son, the foppish and homosexual Herbert. Meanwhile, Chagall, no longer caring about his daughter's fate, sets up his plan to turn Magda into his vampire bride. Despite misgivings, Ambrosius and Alfred accept the Count's invitation to stay in his ramshackled Gothic castle, where Alfred spends the night. The next morning, Ambronius plans to find the castle crypt and destroy the Count by, by staking him in the heart, seemingly forgetting about the fate of Sarah. The crypt is guarded by the hunchback. So after some wandering, they attempt to climb in through a roof window. However, Abronius gets stuck in the aperture and it falls to Alfred to complete the task of killing the Count in his slumber. But at the last moment, his nerves fail him and he cannot accomplish the deed. Alfred then has to go back outside to free Abronius. But on the way, he comes upon Sarah having a bath in her room. She seems oblivious to her danger, which he pleads for her to come away with him and informs him that a, quote, ball is to take place that very night. After briefly taking his eyes off of her, Alfred turns to find Sarah has vanished into thin air. After freeing Abronius, who's half-frozen, they re-enter the castle. Alfred again seeks Sarah, but meets Herbert instead. Well, fucking Herbert. Who first attempts to seduce him, and then after Alfred realizes that Herbert's reflection does not show up in the mirror, 
reveals his vampire nature and attempts to bite him. Abronius and Alfred flee from Herbert through a dark stairway to safety, only to be trapped by a locked door in a turret. I, you know, there's not enough houses with a turret these days. I would have one. If I had a fucking castle, fucking hey, I'd have a fucking turret. As night is falling, they become horrified witnesses as the graves begin to open up to reveal a huge number of vampires of various past centuries at the castle. All these vampires hibernate and meet once a year only to feast upon any captives that the Count has provided for them. The Count appears, mocking them and telling them that their fate is sealed. He leaves them to attend the ball, where Sarah will be presented as the next vampire victim. The hunters escape by firing a cannon at the door, substituting steam pressure for gunpowder, and come to the ball in disguise. Where, although exposed by their reflections in a huge mirror, they are able to grab Sarah and escape, fleeing in a horse-drawn sleigh. Abronius and Alfred are unaware that it is too late for Sarah. She awakens in mid-flight as a vampire and bites Alfred, thus allowing vampires to be released into the world. Now I gotta say guys, I just recently re-watched this. As much as I hate Roman Polanski, I gotta tell you, this wasn't, this wasn't scary. It was fucking hilarious. And maybe it's because I've seen it, you know, half a dozen times, but it was so, I don't know, over your, over the top with a spoof. I don't know. That's just, it, it's just me. So check it out. Next, from 1975, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This has got a whole cast of characters, including Tim Curry, Susan Sarandon, Barry Bostwick, Meatloaf, Charles Gray. The film begins with a pair of floating disembodied lips welcoming the audience to a science fiction double feature. Throughout the film, the criminologist, Gray, from an unspecified point in the future, narrates and provides commentary on the events. In November 1974, following the wedding of their friends, a naive young couple, Brad and Janet, got engaged with the song, Damn It, Janet. Please, don't tell me to can it. Janet. I have one thing to say, and that's, damn it, Janet, I love you. The road was long, but I ran it. Love that song. And decide to celebrate with their high school science teacher, Dr. Scott, who taught the class where they first met. Aw, isn't that sweet? En route to Scott's house on a dark and rainy night, they get lost with a flat tire. Seeking a telephone, because we didn't have cell phones back then, kids. The couple walks up to a nearby castle. Never fucking go to a castle in the dark. Oh my God, that's fucking, ugh. That's like Frankenstein shit 101. Don't fucking do it. To a nearby castle where there's a party being held. They are accepted in by the strangely dressed inhabitants led by the butler Riff Raff, the maid Magenta, 
and a groupie named Columbia who dance to the time warp. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. Just a jump to the left. Put your hands on your hips. Despite feelings of apprehension, they stay to meet the owner of the castle, Dr. Frankenfurter, a transvestite mad scientist played by Tim Curry, who spells it all out in the song, Sweet Transvestite. How'd you do, I? See you've met my faithful handyman. He's just a little broad dying because when you not he thought you were the candy man. Don't get strung up by the way I look. Don't judge a book by its cover. I'm not much of a man by the light of day. But by night I'm one hell of a lover. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual. who ignores their request for a phone but invites him to stay for the night. With the help of Riff Raff, Frank brings to life a tall, muscular, handsome blonde man named Rocky. As Frank vows, he can improve Rocky into the ideal man in a week and a delivery boy named Eddie who is played by a meatloaf, whose half of his brain was used in the creation of Rocky, breaks out of a deep freeze riding a motorcycle. Frank then kills Eddie with a ice axe, justifying it as a mercy killing. Rocky and Frank depart to the bridal suite. Brad and Janet are shown in separate bedrooms, which... Each are visited and seduced by Frank. Meanwhile, Riff Raff and his sister Magenta torment Rocky. Janet, having learned of Brad's dalliance with Frank, discovers Rocky, cowering in the birth tank. While tending to his wounds, Janet seduces Rocky as Magenta and Columbia watch from their bedroom monitor. Dr. Scott, now an investigator of UFOs for the government, arrives at the castle in search of his nephew, Eddie. 
Unaware of Brad and Janet's presence, everyone discovers Janet and Rocky together. <sighs> Enraging Frank. That's horrible. At this point, Magenta summons everyone to an uncomfortable dinner, which is Eddie, which they soon realize has been prepared from Eddie's mutilated remains. Columbia, Eddie's lover, flees the room in tears. Janet runs, screaming into Rocky's arms, provoking Frank to chase her through the halls to the lab. Frank uses his Medusa transducer to turn Dr. Scott, Brad, Janet, Rocky, and Columbia into nude statues. After dressing them in cabaret costumes, Frank unfreezes them as they all perform a live cabaret floor show with the song Rose Tint My World. Riff Raff and Magenta interrupt the performance to declare mutiny. They disapprove of Frank's extreme lifestyle and are ready to return to Transylvania. Frank makes an impassionate plea to return with them, but Riff Raff kills him, as well as Columbia. And Rocky. Riff Raff warns Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott to leave immediately. The castle then lifts off into space. The injured survivors are left then crawling in the smog and dirt, and the criminologist concludes that the human race is equivalent to insects crawling on the Earth's surface, lost in time, lost in space, and meaning. Okay, so a hundred years ago, when our local theater in Podunk, Nebraska, used to show on every Friday or Saturday night, I don't remember which it was, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I actually was a very thin young man, and I would go dressed as Riff Raff. And it was one of those where the audience was so involved in it that we really enjoyed singing along. There was, everybody knew what was going to happen, but it was still a lot of fun. So we got a twofer from the 80s. Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice. So from 1984, written by Ivan Reitman and two of the movie stars, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd, comes Ghostbusters, also starring Bill Murray, Sigourney Weaver, Rick Moranis, Annie Potts, and Ernie Hudson. After Columbia University parapsychologist professors Peter Vinkman, Ray Stance, and Eon Spangler experienced their first encounter with a ghost in the New York City Public Library, the university dean dismisses them and dismisses the credibility of their paranormal-focused research and fires them. The trio respond to establishing, quote, Ghostbusters. A paranormal investigation and elimination service operating out of a disused firehouse. Ghostbusters, what do you want? 
They develop high-tech nuclear-powered equipment to capture and contain ghosts. Although business is initially slow, after a paranormal encounter in her apartment, cellist Dana Barrett calls the Ghostbusters. She recounts witnessing a demon-like creature, a demon-dog-like creature in her refrigerator and uttering the single word, Zool. Ray and Eon research Zool and details of Dana's building while Peter inspects her and her apartment and unsuccessfully attempts to seduce her. The Ghostbusters are hired to remove the gluttonous ghost, Slimer, from the Sedgwick Hotel. Come in, Ray. Pickman! I saw it! I saw it! I saw it! It's right here, Ray. It's looking at me. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move! It won't hurt you! Can you move? Ray, Ray, come in, please. I feel so funky. Spangler, I'm with Bankman. Oh. You got slime. That's great, Ray. Save some for me. Uh, having failed to prompt properly test their equipment, Eon warns the group that crossing the energy streams on their proton packs would cause a catastrophic explosion. There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. Why? It would be bad. I'm fuzzy on the whole good-bad thing. What do you mean, bad? Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. All right, that's bad. Okay. All right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They capture the ghost and deposit in the ecto-containment unit in the firehouse. Supernatural activity rapidly increases across the city, and Ghostbusters become famous. They hire a fourth member, Winston Zedmore, to help cope with the growing demand. Suspicious of the Ghostbusters, EPA Inspector Walter Peck asks to evaluate their equipment, but Peter basically tells him to go fuck himself by rebuffing him. Eon warns that the containment unit is nearly at capacity and the supernatural energy is surging across the city. Peter meets with Dana and informs her was a demigod worshipped as a servant to Gozer the Gozerian, a shape-shifting god of destruction. Upon returning home, she is possessed by Zul, a similar entity possesses her neighbor, Louis Tully. Peter arrives to find a possessed Dana slash Zool. There is no Dana, only Zool. Claiming to be the gatekeeper, Louis is brought to Eon by police and claims that he is Vince Clortho, the Keymaster. I am the Keymaster. I am the gatekeeper. 
the Ghostbusters agreed that they should probably keep this pair separated. Peck returns with law enforcement and city workers to have the Ghostbusters arrested and their containment unit deactivated, causing an explosion that releases the captured ghosts. Lewis escapes in the confusion and makes his way to the apartment building to join Dana. In jail, Ray and Eon reveal that Ivo Shandor, leader of a Gozer worshiping cult in the early 20th century, designed Dana's building to function as an antenna to attract and concentrate spiritual energy to summon Gozer and bring about the apocalypse. Faced with supernatural chaos across the city, the Ghostbusters convince the mayor to release them. The Ghostbusters then travel to a hidden temple located on top of the building where Dana and Lewis open the gate between dimensions and transform into demonic dogs. Gozer. Gozer the Gozerian. Good evening. As a duly designated representative of the city, county, and state of New York, I order you to cease any and all supernatural activity and return forthwith to your place of origin or to the nearest convenient parallel dimension. That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. Appears as a woman with a flat top, by the way. She looked a lot to me like Sheena Easton, but that was just me and attacks the Ghostbusters, then disappears when they attempt to retaliate. Her disembodied voice demands the Ghostbusters, quote, choose the form of the Destructor. Ray inadvertently recalls a beloved corporate mascot from his childhood, and Gozer reappears in a gigantic Stay Puft Marshmallow Man that begins destroying the city. Choose. Choose the form of the Destructor. Oh, I get it. I get it. Oh, very cute. Whatever we think of. If we think of J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover will appear and destroy us, okay? So empty your hands. Empty your hands. Don't think of anything. We've only got one shot at this. The choice is made. Whoa, oh, oh, whoa. The Traveler has come. Nobody choose anything. Did you choose anything? No. Did you? My line is totally blank. I didn't choose anything! I couldn't help it. It just popped in there. What? What just popped in there? I... I... I tried to think. Look! No! It can't be! What is it? It can't be! What did you do, Ray? Oh, shit! the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Against his earlier advice, Eon instructs the team that if they cross their proton streams, they will open the interdimensional gate. The resulting explosion destroys Gozer's avatar, banishing it back to its dimension and closing the gateway. The Ghostbusters rescue Dana and Lewis from the wreckage and are as welcomed on the street as heroes. Side note, Ghostbusters has spawned two great additional movies and one really 
shitty remake. Yes, I'm talking about the one with Melissa McCarthy in 2016. And they've also created, you know, several cartoons. So, Ghostbusters Afterlife was an absolute gem to bookend the movies. Loved it. That piece of crap with Melissa McCarthy, ugh, yeah. I wouldn't even watch that when I was, you know, fuckered up. So, that's just me. From 1988, starring Michael Keaton, Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, Catherine O'Hara, Jeffrey Jones, and Winona Ryder comes Beetlejuice. Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague, and I had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? You think I'm qualified? In Winter River, Connecticut, Barbara and Adam Maitland decide to spend their vacation decorating their idyllic country home. And they are driving home from a trip to town. Barbara swerves to avoid a dog and the car plunges into the river. Dun, dun, dun. After returning home, she and Adam notice that they now lack reflections and find a handbook for the recently deceased. They begin to suspect they did not survive the car accident when Adam attempts to leave the house and he ends up in a strange and otherworldly desert-like landscape populated by enormous sandworms. The encounter lasts only a few seconds for him, but after being rescued by Barbara, she claims that he was gone for two hours. The house then sold the new owners, the Dietz family, from New York City. Charles Dietz, a former real estate developer, his second wife, Delia, who is a self-proclaimed sculptor, and his teenage goth daughter, Lydia, from his first marriage, uh, who is a aspiring photographer. Under the guidance of interior designer Otho, the family transforms the house into a pastel-toned work of postmodern art. Consulting the handbook, the Maitlands travel to a, an otherworldly waiting room populated by other distressed souls where they discover the afterlife is structured according to a very complex bureaucracy involving vouchers and caseworkers. Doesn't that just suck? Here you think you're going to be done with all that shit. The Maitland's caseworker, Juno, informs them that they must remain in the house for the next 125 years on the pain of dire fate. But if they want the Dietzes out of the house, it's up to them to scare them away. Although Adam and Barbara remain invisible to Charles and Delia, Lydia can see them. And not only that, but she also befriends them. Against Juno's advice, the Maitlands contact the miscreant Beetlejuice. Oh, fuck. I said it the third time. Beetlejuice. 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 It's showtime. Juno's former assistant and now freelance bio-exorcist to scare away the Dietzes. However... Beetlejuice quickly offends the Maitlands with his crude and morbid demeanor. 
They reconsider hiring him, though too late to stop him from wreaking havoc on the Dietzes. The small town's charm and supernatural events inspire Charles to pitch his boss, Maxie Dean, into transforming the town into a tourist hotspot. But Maxie wants proof of the ghosts. Using the handbook for the recently deceased, Otho conducts what he thinks is a seance and summons Adam and Barbara using their wedding clothes. But they begin to age and decay as Otho has unwittingly performed an exorcism instead. Horrified, Lydia summons Beetlejuice for help, but he will only help her on the condition that she marries him, enabling him to freely cause chaos in the mortal world. He saves the Maitlands and disposes of Maxie, his wife, and Otho, then prepares a wedding f- before a ghastly minister. The Maitlands intervene before the ceremony is completed, with Barbara riding a sandworm through the house to devour Beetlejuice. Finally, the Dietzes and the Maitlands agree to live in harmony within the house. Beetlejuice is stuck in the afterlife waiting room. He steals a number ticket from a witch doctor who then shrinks his head in return. Side note, coming in 2024 is Beetlejuice 2. It supposedly is going to star Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, and Catherine O'Hara from the original. To say the least, this will be one that I go to the theater to see. And finally, The Frighteners was released in 1996, and it starred Michael J. Fox, John Astin, Jeffrey Jeffrey Combs. Basically, he's like Star Trek royalty. In 1990, Deborah Bannister dies in a car accident, and her husband Frank, played by Michael J. Fox, abandons architecture, and his unfinished dream house sits incomplete. Following the accident... Frank gains powers to see ghosts and befriends three of them. Cyrus, an African-American man from the 70s, a nerd from the 1950s named Stuart, and the Judge, an Old West gunslinger played by John Austin. The ghosts haunt houses so Frank can exercise them, hard air quotes there, for a fee. Most locals consider him a con man. Soon after Frank Kahn's local health advocate Ray Linsky and his wife Lucy, Ray dies of a heart attack. Frank discovers that there is an entity appearing as the Grim Reaper killing people, first marking them with numbers on their forehead that only Frank sees. Deborah, his wife, had a similar number when she was found. Frank's ability to foretell the murders puts him under suspicion with the police. And FBI agent Milton Dammers, played by Jeffrey Combs, who is convinced that Frank is responsible for everything. The newspaper editor, Magda Rees-Jones, attacks him in the press. After Frank fails to save Rees-Jones from the Grim Reaper, he is then charged with her murder. Lucy investigates the murders and becomes the Grim Reaper's target while visiting Frank in jail. They escape with the help of Cyrus and Stuart, who are both dissolved in the process. Lucy helps Frank have a near-death experience by putting him into 
hypothermia and using barbiturates to stop his heart. From his ghostly form, Frank confronts the Grim Reaper and, dis and discovers that he is the ghost of Johnny Bartlett, a psychiatric hospital orderly who was executed for killing 12 people in 1964. Newspaper reports reveal that his greatest desire was to become the most prolific serial killer. Patricia Bradley, then a teenager, was accused of being his accomplice, although she escaped the death penalty being underage. Lucy resuscitates Frank and they visit Pamela. Unknown to them, Pamela is still in love with Bartlett and on friendly terms with his ghost. Patricia eventually kills her mother, who had been trying to monitor her daughter's behavior. Lucy and Frank trap Bartlett's spirit in an urn, which Patricia has kept. The pair make for the chapel of the now-abandoned psychiatric hospital to send Bartlett's ghost to hell. Patricia and Dahmer's chase them through the ruins. Dahmer's throws the ashes away, releasing Bartlett's ghost again, and Patricia kills Dahmer's. Bartlett's ghost and Patricia chase Frank and Lucy. Frank realizes that Bartlett's ghost, with Patricia's help, was responsible for his wife's death and the number on her brow, and that he is still trying to add to his body count and infamy even after his death. Out of bullets, Patricia strangles Frank to death, but Frank in spirit form rips Patricia's spirit from her body, forcing Bartlett to follow them. Bartlett grabs Patricia's ghost while Frank makes it to heaven, where he's reunited with Cyrus Stewart and his wife, Deborah. Bartlett and Patricia's spirits claim that they will now go back and claim more lives, but the portal to heaven quickly changes to a demonic looking appearance and they are both dragged to hell by a giant worm-like creature. Frank learns it is not yet his time and is sent back to his body as Deborah's spirit tells him to be happy. Frank and Lucy fall in love. Frank demolishes the unfinished dream house and builds a life with Lucy. The morose-looking ghost of Dahmer's rides around in Sheriff Walt Perry's car. Perry, who is also Frank's friend, approaches him and reveals that the police discovered a huge collection of Ouija boards in Patricia's rooms. This causes Frank to realize that Patricia used them to bring Bartlett back to the world of the living. As Perry leaves, Lucy reveals that now she can see ghosts like Frank. Frank and Betty's got strawberry-flavored sweeties. Count Chocula's got chocolate sweeties. Must be for me. Uh. Hello, my name is Boo. <laughs> Gentlemen, let me finish. Boo Berry, your new neighbor. I do not wish to frighten, just to borrow some milk and to explain about my new ghostly good blueberry-flavored cereal with a haunting blueberry taste. Boo Berry. Well, boo to you, Booberry! Gentlemen, please, I, I just want to tell you about my new super sweet cereal, Booberry! Frankenberry's got strawberry-flavored sweeties! Count Chocula's got 
chocolate sweeties. But I've got blueberry-flavored sweeties. Dragonberry, Coke chocolate. And brand new blueberry-flavored blueberry. <laughs> the views and opinions expressed are just that, Rob's views and opinions. He's not always politically correct, and those views may not match up with your own. Please believe me, it is not his intention to offend anyone. Hopefully you find the shows entertaining and informative as well. Please note, Rob is not a professional historian, but he has done a lot of research for this show. With that being said, mistakes happen, but he will do his best to minimize those. Keep in mind, he's just some nut with a microphone. All right, welcome back from that break. Since there are way too many movies in the horror genre, over the next several weeks, I'm going to try, and I mean hard, hard air quotes, and focus only on my five favorites from that decade. So this week, like I said, I'm going to focus on the combined comedy slash horror genre. And believe it or not, that's a thing. So from the 1960s, I'm going to talk about the Fearless Vampire Killers. 70s, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. From the 80s, you get a twofer, Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice. And then finally in the 90s, The Frighteners. Many of you may not be aware of the Fearless Vampire Killers. It's from 1967, directed by and starring that fucking pedophile, puke-ass clown, Roman Polanski, and his future wife and Manson victim, Sharon Tate, as well as Jack McGowan. Set in the deep, deep heart of Transylvania, the story appears to take some to take place sometime during the mid-19th century. Professor Aberonius and his who's played by McGowan, and his apprentice Alfred, played by ass clown Polanski, are on the hunt for vampires. Aberonius is old and withering and barely able to survive the cold ride through the wintry forests while Alfred is bumbling and introverted. The two hunters come to a small village seemingly at the end of a long search for vampires. The two stay at a local inn full of angst-ridden townspeople who perform strange rituals to fend off an unseen evil. While staying in the inn, Alfred develops a fondness for Sarah. Well, Sarah's being played by Sharon Tate, an overprotected daughter of the tavern keeper Yoin Shoggle. Yoin. You know, you just don't see enough people in this day and age. I don't think I've ever met anybody by the name of Yoin. Alfred witnesses Sarah being kidnapped by the local vampire, Lord Count von Krolock. Crazed with grief and armed only with a bunch of garlic, Chagall attempts to rescue her, but does not get very far before he is captured, drained of his blood, and vampirized. Is that really a word, vampirized? I don't know. We're going to go with it, though. After Chagall rises and attacks Magda, the tavern's beautiful maidservant and the object of his lust while he was still human, Abronius and Alfred follow his trail in the snow, which leads them to 
Krolok's ominous castle in the snow-blanketed hills nearby. They break into the castle, but are trapped by the Count's hunchbacked servant, Cuckold. Wow. But they're putting it out there, ain't they? They're cuckold. They are taken to see the Count, who affects an air of aristocratic dignity while questioning Aberonius why he has come to the castle. They also encounter the Count's son, the foppish and homosexual Herbert. Meanwhile, Chagall, no longer caring about his daughter's fate, sets up his plan to turn Magda into his vampire bride. Despite misgivings, Ambrosius and Alfred accept the Count's invitation to stay in his ramshackled Gothic castle, where Alfred spends the night. The next morning, Ambronius plans to find the castle crypt and destroy the Count by by staking him in the heart, seemingly forgetting about the fate of Sarah. The crypt is guarded by the hunchback. So after some wandering, they attempt to climb in through a roof window. However, Abronius gets stuck in the aperture and it falls to Alfred to complete the task of killing the Count in his slumber. But at the last moment, his nerves fail him and he cannot accomplish the deed. Alfred then has to go back outside to free Abronius. But on the way, he comes upon Sarah having a bath in her room. She seems oblivious to her danger, which he pleads for her to come away with him and informs him that a, quote, ball is to take place that very night. After briefly taking his eyes off of her, Alfred turns to find Sarah has vanished into thin air. After freeing Abronius, who's half-frozen, they re-enter the castle. Alfred again seeks Sarah, but meets Herbert instead. Fucking Herbert. Who first attempts to seduce him, and then after Alfred realizes that Herbert's reflection does not show up in the mirror, reveals his vampire nature and attempts to bite him. Abronius and Alfred flee from Herbert through a dark stairway to safety, only to be trapped by a locked door in a turret. I, you know, there's not enough houses with a turret these days. I would have one. If I had a fucking castle, fucking hey, I'd have a fucking turret. As night is falling, they become horrified witnesses as the graves begin to open up to reveal a huge number of vampires of various past centuries at the castle. All these vampires hibernate and meet once a year only to feast upon any captives that the Count has provided for them. The Count appears, mocking them and telling them that their fate is sealed. He leaves them to attend the ball where Sarah will be presented as the next vampire victim. The hunters escape by firing a cannon at the door, substituting steam pressure for gunpowder, and come to the ball in disguise. Where, although exposed by their reflections in a huge mirror, they are able to grab Sarah and escape, fleeing in a horse-drawn sleigh. Abronius, 
and Alfred are unaware that it is too late for Sarah. She awakens in mid-flight as a vampire and bites Alfred, thus allowing vampires to be released into the world. Now I gotta say guys, I just recently re-watched this. As much as I hate Roman Polanski, I gotta tell you, this wasn't, this wasn't scary. It was fucking hilarious. And maybe it's because I've seen it, you know, half a dozen times, but it was so, I don't know, over over the top with a spoof. I don't know. That's just, that's just me. So check it out. Next, from 1975, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This has got a whole cast of characters, including Tim Curry, Susan Sarandon, Barry Bostwick, Meatloaf, Charles Gray. The film begins with a pair of floating disembodied lips welcoming the audience to a science fiction double feature. Throughout the film, the criminologist, Gray, from an unspecified point in the future, narrates and provides commentary on the events. In November 1974, following the wedding of their friends, a naive young couple, Brad and Janet, got engaged with the song, Damn It, Janet. So please, don't tell me to can it. Janet. I have one thing to say, and that's, Damn it, Janet, I love you. The road was long, but I ran it. Love that song. And decide to celebrate with their high school science teacher, Dr. Scott, who taught the class where they first met. Aw, isn't that sweet? En route to Scott's house on a dark and rainy night, they get lost with a flat tire. Seeking a telephone, because we didn't have cell phones back then, kids. The couple walks up to a nearby castle. Never fucking go to a castle in the dark. Oh my God, that's fucking, ugh. That's like Frankenstein shit 101. Don't fucking do it. To a nearby castle where there's a party being held. They are accepted in by the strangely dressed inhabitants led by the butler Riff Raff, the maid Magenta, and a groupie named Columbia who dance to the time warp. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. Despite feelings of apprehension, 
They stay to meet the owner of the castle, Dr. Frankenfurter, a transvestite mad scientist played by Tim Curry, who spells it all out in the song, Sweet Transvestite. How'd you do, I? See you've met my faithful hand in hand. He's just a little broad dying because when you knocked, he thought you were the candy man. Don't get strung up by the way I look. Don't judge a book by its cover. I'm not much of a man by the light of day, but by night I'm one hell of a lover. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. who ignores their requests for a phone, but invites him to stay for the night. With the help of Riff Raff, Frank brings to life a tall, muscular, handsome blonde man named Rocky. As Frank vows, he can improve Rocky into the ideal man in a week and a delivery boy named Eddie, who is played by a meatloaf, whose half of his brain was used in the creation of Rocky breaks out of a deep freeze riding a motorcycle. Frank then kills Eddie with a ice axe, justifying it as a mercy killing. Rocky and Frank depart to the bridal suite. Brad and Janet are shown in separate bedrooms, which each are visited and seduced by Frank. Meanwhile, Riff Raff and his sister Magenta torment Rocky. Janet, having learned of Brad's dalliance with Frank, discovers Rocky, cowering in the birth tank. While tending to his wounds, Janet seduces Rocky as Magenta and Columbia watch from their bedroom monitor. Dr. Scott, now an investigator of UFOs for the government, arrives at the castle in search of his nephew, Eddie. Unaware of Brad and Janet's presence, everyone discovers Janet and Rocky together. <sighs> Enraging Frank. That's horrible. At this point, Magenta summons everyone to an uncomfortable dinner, which is Eddie, which they soon realize has been prepared from Eddie's mutilated remains. Columbia, Eddie's lover, flees the room in tears. Janet runs, screaming into Rocky's arms, provoking Frank to chase her through the halls to the lab. Frank uses his Medusa transducer to turn Dr. Scott, Brad, Janet, Rocky, and Columbia into nude statues. After dressing them in cabaret costumes, Frank unfreezes them as they all perform a live cabaret floor show with the song Rose Tint My World. Riff Raff and Magenta interrupt the performance to declare mutiny. They disapprove of Frank's extreme lifestyle and are ready to return to Transylvania. Frank makes an impassionate plea to return with them, but Riff Raff kills him, as well as Columbia. And Rocky. Riff Raff warns Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott to leave immediately. The castle then lifts off into space. 
the injured survivors are left then crawling in the smog and dirt and the criminologist concludes that the human race is equivalent to insects crawling on the earth's surface lost in time lost in space and meaning okay so a hundred years ago when our local theater in podunk nebraska used to show on every friday or saturday night i don't remember which it was the rocky horror picture show i actually was a very thin young man and i would go dressed as riffraff and it was one of those where the audience was so involved in it that we really enjoyed singing along there was everybody knew what was going to happen but it was still a lot of fun so we got a twofer from the 80s Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice. So from 1984, written by Ivan Reitman and two of the movie stars, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd, comes Ghostbusters, also starring Bill Murray, Sigourney Weaver, Rick Moranis, Annie Potts, and Ernie Hudson. After Columbia University, a parapsychologist professors Peter Vinkman, Ray Stance, and Eon Spangler experienced their first encounter with a ghost in the New York City Public Library, the university dean dismisses them and be, dismisses the credibility of their paranormal-focused research and fires them. The trio respond to establishing, quote, Ghostbusters, a paranormal investigation and elimination service operating out of a disused firehouse. Ghostbusters, what do you want? They develop high-tech nuclear-powered equipment to capture and contain ghosts. Although business is initially slow, after a paranormal encounter in her apartment, cellist Dana Barrett calls the Ghostbusters. She recounts witnessing a demon-like creature, a demon-dog-like creature in her refrigerator and uttering the single word, Zool. Ray and Eon research Zool and details of Dana's building while Peter inspects her and her apartment and unsuccessfully attempts to seduce her. The Ghostbusters are hired to remove the gluttonous ghost, Slimer, from the Sedgwick Hotel. Come in, Ray. Hitman! I saw it! I saw it! I saw it! It's right here, Ray. It's looking at me. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move! It won't hurt you! Slime me. That's 
great actual physical contact. Can you move? Ray, Ray, come in, please. I feel so funky. Spengler, I'm with Bankman. Oh. You got slime. That's great, Ray. Save some for me. Uh, having failed to prompt properly test their equipment, Eon warns the group that crossing the energy streams on their proton packs would cause a catastrophic explosion. There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. Why? It would be bad. I'm fuzzy on the whole good-bad thing. What do you mean, bad? Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. Right, that's bad. Okay. All right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They capture the ghost and deposit in the ecto-containment unit in the firehouse. Supernatural activity rapidly increases across the city, and Ghostbusters become famous. They hire a fourth member, Winston Zedmore, to help cope with the growing demand. Suspicious of the Ghostbusters, EPA Inspector Walter Peck asks to evaluate their equipment, but Peter basically tells him to go fuck himself by rebuffing him. Eon warns that the containment unit is nearly at capacity and the supernatural energy is surging across the city. Peter meets with Dana and informs her Zool was a demigod worshipped as a servant to Gozer the Gozerian, a shape-shifting god of destruction. Upon returning home, she is possessed by Zool. A similar entity possesses her neighbor, Louis Tully. Peter arrives to find a possessed Dana slash Zool. There is no Dana, only Zool. Claiming to be the gatekeeper, Louis is brought to Eon by police and claims that he is Vince Clortho, the keymaster. I am the keymaster. I am the gatekeeper. The Ghostbusters agreed that they should probably keep this pair separated. Peck returns with law enforcement and city workers to have the Ghostbusters arrested and their containment unit deactivated, causing an explosion that releases the captured ghosts. Lewis escapes in the confusion and makes his way to the apartment building to join Dana. In jail, Ray and Eon reveal that Ivo Shandor, leader of a Gozer worshipping cult in the early 20th century, designed Dana's building to function as an antenna to attract and concentrate spiritual energy to summon Gozer and bring about the apocalypse. Faced with supernatural chaos across the city, the Ghostbusters convince the mayor to release them. The Ghostbusters then travel to a hidden temple located on top of the building where Dana and Lewis open the gate between dimensions and transform into demonic dogs. Gozer. Gozer the Gozerian. Good evening. As a duly designated representative of the city, county, and state of New York, I order you to cease any and all supernatural activity and return forthwith to your place of origin or to the nearest convenient parallel dimension. That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. 
appears as a woman with a flat top, by the way. She looked a lot to me like Sheena Easton, but that was just me. And attacks the Ghostbusters, then disappears when they attempt to retaliate. Her disembodied voice demands the Ghostbusters, quote, choose the form of the destructor. Ray inadvertently recalls a beloved corporate mascot from his childhood, and Gozer reappears in a gigantic Stay Puft Marshmallow Man that begins destroying the city. Choose. Choose the form of the destructor. Oh, I get it. I get it all. Very cute. Whatever we think of. If we think of J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover will appear and destroy us, okay? So empty your hands. Empty your hands. Don't think of anything. We've only got one shot at this. The choice is made. Whoa, ho, ho, whoa. The traveler has come. Nobody choose anything. Did you choose anything? No. Did you? The line is totally blank. I didn't choose anything. I couldn't help it. It just popped in there. What? What just popped in there? I, I, I tried to think. Look! No! It can't be. What is it? It can't be. What did you do, Ray? Oh, shit. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Against his earlier advice, Eon instructs the team that if they cross their proton streams, they will open the interdimensional gate. The resulting explosion destroys Gozer's avatar, banishing it back to its dimension and closing the gateway. The Ghostbusters rescue Dana and Lewis from the wreckage and are as welcomed on the street as heroes. Side note, Ghostbusters has spawned two great additional movies and one really shitty remake yes i'm talking about the one with melissa mccarthy in 2016 and they've also created you know several cartoons so ghostbusters afterlife was an absolute gem to bookend the movies loved it that piece of crap with melissa mccarthy ugh, yeah i wouldn't even watch that when i was you know fuckered up so that's just me from 1988 starring michael keaton alec baldwin gina davis katherine o'hara jeffrey jones and winona Ryder comes beetlejuice ah well i attended juilliard i'm a graduate of the harvard business school i travel quite extensively i lived through the black plague and i had a pretty good time during that i've seen the exorcist about 167 times and it keeps getting funnier every single time i see it not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? You think I'm qualified? In Winter River, Connecticut, Barbara and Adam Maitland decide to spend their vacation decorating their idyllic country home. And they are driving home from a trip to town. Barbara swerves to avoid a dog, and the car plunges into the river. Dun, dun, dun. After returning home, she and Adam notice that they now lack reflections and find a handbook for the recently deceased. 
they begin to suspect they did not survive the car accident when Adam attempts to leave the house and he ends up in a strange and otherworldly desert-like landscape populated by enormous sandworms. The encounter lasts only a few seconds for him, but after being rescued by Barbara, she claims that he was gone for two hours. The house then sold the new owners, the Dietz family, from New York City. Charles Dietz, a former real estate developer, his second wife, Delia, who is a self-proclaimed sculptor, and his teenage goth daughter, Lydia, from his first marriage, uh, who is a aspiring photographer. Under the guidance of interior designer Otho, the family transforms the house into a pastel-toned work of postmodern art. Consulting the handbook, the Maitlands travel to a, an otherworldly waiting room populated by other distressed souls where they discover the afterlife is structured according to a very complex bureaucracy involving vouchers and caseworkers. Doesn't that just suck? Here you think you're going to be done with all that shit. The Maitland's caseworker, Juno, informs them that they must remain in the house for the next 125 years on the pain of dire fate. But if they want the Dietzes out of the house, it's up to them to scare them away. Although Adam and Barbara remain invisible to Charles and Delia, Lydia can see them. And not only that, but she also befriends them. Against Juno's advice, the Maitlands contact the miscreant Beetlejuice. Oh, fuck. I said it the third time. Beetlejuice. 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 It's showtime. Juno's former assistant and now freelance bio-exorcist to scare away the Dietzes. However, Beetlejuice quickly offends the Maitlands with his crude and morbid demeanor. They reconsider hiring him, though too late to stop him from wreaking havoc on the Dietzes. The small town's charm and supernatural events inspire Charles to pitch his boss, Maxie Dean, into transforming the town into a tourist hotspot. But... Maxie wants proof of the ghosts. Using the handbook for the recently deceased, Otho conducts what he thinks is a seance and summons Adam and Barbara using their wedding clothes. But they begin to age and decay as Otho has unwittingly performed an exorcism instead. Horrified, Lydia summons Beetlejuice for help, but he will only help her on the condition that she marries him enabling him to freely cause chaos in the mortal world. He saves the Maitlands and disposes of Maxie, his wife, and Otho, then prepares a wedding f before a ghastly minister. The Maitlands intervene before the ceremony is completed, with Barbara riding a sandworm through the house to devour Beetlejuice. Finally, the Dietzes and the Maitlands agree to live in harmony within the house. Beetlejuice is stuck in the afterlife waiting room. He steals a number ticket from a witch doctor who then shrinks his head in return. Side note, coming in 2024 is Beetlejuice 2. It supposedly is going to star Michael Keaton, 
Winona Ryder and Catherine O'Hara from the original. To say the least, this will be one that I go to the theater to see. And finally, The Frighteners was released in 1996 and it starred Michael J. Fox, John Astin, Jeffrey Jeffrey Combs, basically, he's like Star Trek royalty. In 1990, Deborah Bannister dies in a car accident and her husband Frank, played by Michael J. Fox, abandons architecture and his unfinished dream house sits incomplete. Following the accident, Frank gains powers to see ghosts and befriends three of them. Cyrus, an African-American man from the 70s, a nerd from the 1950s named Stuart, and the Judge, an Old West gunslinger played by John Austin. The ghosts haunt houses so Frank can exercise them, hard air quotes there, for a fee. Most locals consider him a con man. Soon after Frank Kahn's local health advocate Ray Linsky and his wife Lucy, Ray dies of a heart attack. Frank discovers that there is an entity appearing as the Grim Reaper, killing people, first marking them with numbers on their forehead that only Frank sees. Deborah, his wife, had a similar number when she was found. Frank's ability to foretell the murders puts him under suspicion with the police. And FBI agent Milton Dammers, played by Jeffrey Combs, who is convinced that Frank is responsible for everything. The newspaper editor, Magda Rees Jones, attacks him in the press. After Frank fails to save Rees Jones from the Grim Reaper, he is then charged with her murder. Lucy investigates the murders and becomes the Grim Reaper's target while visiting Frank in jail. They escape with the help of Cyrus and Stuart, who are both dissolved in the process. Lucy helps Frank have a near-death experience by putting him into hypothermia and using barbiturates to stop his heart. From his ghostly form, Frank confronts the Grim Reaper and and discovers that he is the ghost of Johnny Bartlett, a psychiatric hospital orderly who was executed for killing 12 people in 1964. Newspaper reports reveal that his greatest desire was to become the most prolific serial killer. Patricia Bradley, then a teenager, was accused of being his accomplice although she escaped the death penalty being underage. Lucy resuscitates Frank and they visit Pamela. Unknown to them, Pamela is still in love with Bartlett and on friendly terms with his ghost. Patricia eventually kills her mother who had been trying to monitor her daughter's behavior. Lucy and Frank trap Bartlett's spirit in an urn which Patricia has kept. The pair make for the chapel of the now-abandoned psychiatric hospital to send Bartlett's ghost to hell. Patricia and Dahmers chase them through the ruins. Dahmers throws the ashes away, releasing Bartlett's ghost again, and Patricia kills Dahmers. Bartlett's ghost and Patricia chase Frank and Lucy. Frank realizes that Bartlett's ghost, with Patricia's help, was responsible for his wife's death and the number on her brow. 
and that he is still trying to add to his body count and infamy even after his death. Out of bullets, Patricia strangles Frank to death, but Frank in spirit form rips Patricia's spirit from her body, forcing Bartlett to follow them. Bartlett grabs Patricia's ghost while Frank makes it to heaven, where he's reunited with Cyrus Stewart and his wife, Deborah. Bartlett and Patricia's spirits claim that they will now go back and claim more lives, but the portal to heaven quickly changes to a demonic-looking appearance, and they are both dragged to hell by a giant worm-like creature. Frank learns it is not yet his time and is sent back to his body as Deborah's spirit tells him to be happy. Frank and Lucy fall in love. Frank demolishes the unfinished dream house and builds a life with Lucy. The morose-looking ghost of Dahmer's rides around in Sheriff Walt Perry's car. Perry, who is also Frank's friend, approaches him and reveals that the police discovered a huge collection of Ouija boards in Patricia's rooms. This causes Frank to realize that Patricia used them to bring Bartlett back to the world of the living. As Perry leaves, Lucy reveals that now she can see ghosts like Frank. Fruit! Quiet! Fruit! Ah! I'm me, Fruit Brute, with my fruit-flavored cereal, Fruit Brute, part of your nutritious breakfast. True on you! But delicious Fruit Brute has fruit-flavored marshmallows for the howling good taste of fruit. Count Chocula's got chocolate marshmallows. Frank and Betty's got strawberry-flavored marshmallows. Fruit! Fruit Brute, with a howling good taste of fruit. Any claims of time travel are purely fictitious and are only meant for entertainment. And honestly, if you believe he can travel through time, I have only one question for you. What the hell is wrong with you? Hey, thanks a lot for joining me. I know, Harley. It's time to it's time to it's time for this show to end. I know. She's letting us know that it's time for this week. So Anyway, uh, hope you guys are looking forward to next week. We're going to be talking about my favorite five horror movies from the 60s. So, I know. So, Harley, say goodnight. Good girl. We'll see you guys next time. This has been Generation Extraordinary. The views and opinions are mine and mine alone. Any claims of time travel are purely fictitious. The music and audio clips are not mine, and in most cases were downloaded through my paid YouTube subscription and are only used for entertainment purposes. GXO is a production of Popeye Enterprises. Its host, creator, producer, and editor is Robert Pop. Co-producer is Harley Quinn Pop. Special guest voice actresses are... Ariel Pop and Rachel Lyons. For more information, support, or to contact us, go to the website at www.genxord.com. Thanks for listening.
And if you see her in your dreams, be sure you never, ever scream.